Today is the last day that the government will collect five bucks on every prescription on those 14 up. With us is Gemma Parry, pharmacist and spokesperson for Prescription Access Initiative. Kia ora, Gemma. Kia ora, Wallace. This is something you've campaigned for years. Tomorrow it's reality. This must be quite a moment for you. Yeah, absolutely. It feels like a history-making event for us in pharmacy and in primary health care. Um, I see it as an opportunity that the government's drawn the line and said, from now on, we, we're hearing the voices of our patients and we're hearing the voice of primary health care. And this is a big step forward. So practically tomorrow morning, if I need to pick up a prescription, when you come and get your medicine, outline the situation. So you're going to come in and you're going to pick up your prescription and your friendly pharmacist is going to be able to talk to you about your house needs instead of helping you work out your finances and figuring out if you can afford it. So it's going to be a transaction about health instead of finances and we're really, really excited about that. So it applies for prescriptions that are processed from tomorrow, but it also applies for anything that's sitting on our shelves right now. So if patients have got prescriptions that they've handed in and they haven't been able to come in and collect them within the last few months, we can still do those prescriptions, come in and they will be free. Yeah. Gemma Guy and Espiner here. I'm just wondering what you think would be the impact on, on people who have possibly seen this as a, as a barrier to actually uh, picking up medication that, that, that they may need. Are we, are we going to get greater access, do you think? Absolutely. Um, we know from our research and so the community experiences that pharmacists have seen about the co-payment, as well as calling Norris Research into um, associated hospitalations with the co-payment, that this is a huge barrier and people have not been picking up their prescription because of cost and they've been making, doing some really heartbreaking choices around how can they afford to put food on the table to pay for fuel and, um, and to get their prescriptions as well and, have, and pharmacists have been involved in those decision makings as well. So we know that this has been a massive barrier and so far the feedback when I talk to patients in my store um, they're just absolutely relieved that, that this relief right. is coming, that they won't have to pay it, and that we can focus on health and wellbeing instead of finances. Ellie? I, I applaud it as far as, you know, returning some equity to, to the health system here, and um, I think it's great. However, I think it should have been more nuanced, and it should have been more focused on those who need it. Uh, I don't understand why millionaires, people who can afford it, are going to get this waived. I'd, I'd like to know how much the government's subsidising those people who can afford it, uh, dollar-wise, so that we could see what could have been put into the health system to help others. You know, I totally hear what Jim is saying about, you know, financial... Um, uh, talking about finances and how to finance things that you actually need for your health. I see it at my local doctors, mm. women who can't afford the 35, 45 bucks for a smear. So they put it on, you know, they, they pay it off. I would far rather some money going go into general practice to help those women than it go into uh, the subsidy for people who can afford prescriptions. It's a fair point, isn't it, Gemma? Why not um, target it more? Why make it universal? Well, when you think targeted, think red tape. And that is absolutely true in pharmacy and in primary health care. So if, as soon as we start um, targeting, we exclude people that, who really need it. So, for example, in the Pauline Norris study, that showed that clear link with hospitalisations with, with the co-payment. Only 70% of those high health needs and deprived populations had a community services card. So we know that the people who really need it don't always get a community services card. We put up these big barriers for them being able to access these systems and, and it doesn't reach the mark. So people will fall through the cracks. All right. The other thing is that this is going to be naturally targeted. The people who really need this, the deprived populations, um, 
I'm, they'll be the highest users. The people who are wealthy, they, they don't tend to use our services as much. They have other ways to look after their health. And, um, you know, I think just come back to thinking about hospitals. You know, we don't charge people at hospitals for their prescriptions or their care. We decided that secondary care is entirely free. So if National, for example, said that um, if you can afford it, you should pay for it. So we don't apply that rule in hospitals, and I would hope that National aren't about to start charging people for um, hospital admissions as well. It's a really good time to refocus on okay, Gemma. Yeah. Yeah. Let's bring it on in. I do, I do, I do agree uh, with the initiative because um, if, you, if you try to uh, make it complicated by uh, making it nuanced in terms of uh, the rich people or people who can afford it to pay for it, then, uh, then the complication of introducing means testing and all that other stuff starts to come in and then we delay it even more. So I'm completely on board with it. I think it's, it's a bit of a whataboutism kind of an argument. We, we should make it free. So it's, it's free. Now, the, the question I have with, uh, for you is that you, you work in the community. What have been um, your um, dealings with people who know about this news and what they are feeling at the moment? Um, just, you know, just, just to be outside of the political discourse that happens. Absolutely, yeah. Look, patients are really relieved. I had a, a lady, I, I've been telling every patient this when I take the prescription out and take their $5 off them. Hey, did you know from the 1st of July this is actually going to be free? And people are, are just so relieved and excited. I had a lady who had a stroke in her 40s and had significant ongoing health costs associated with that and was impacting her work. And she was in tears. She was just blown away. She said this would make such a big difference to her being able to afford to prioritise her health and it would be a huge stress off her shoulders. And I think in a cost-of-living crisis, this is just a really easy way to give everyone a bit of a lift, and especially those who really need it. So, so you see it. So you, as a pharmacist, Gemma, you, you see this. You see people coming in and perhaps uh, leaving their medicine at the desk because their swipe card goes through uh, and ups, there's no money in the account. Absolutely. Oh, we see it day in, day out across the country in all demographics and, and people who have community services cards, definitely people without. And the scary thing as well is that we don't see them as well. They don't present. So um, we really need this message mm. to get out. So the people who haven't been presenting with their prescriptions because they straight up know that they're not going to be able to pay it, that we want those people to come back in and then to know as soon as you get a prescription, if you've got holding a script in your hand from a you know, regular doctor, regular prescriber, midwife, come on in because it's going to be free. So that barrier is gone and we need to get that message out right. to the population. Final comment. Uh, just, just, a, uh, just, a, just a final question about, because I've had some conversations with people and who are opposed to this or who are in favour of it. There's, there's a confusion amongst people that is the five, was the $5 charge per item or it was for the whole prescription one, one time you go to the thing. So Because if it's per item, then it becomes a lot because a lot of people are getting uh, several medications at one time with repeat inhalers and diabetes and blood pressure medication, etc. Yeah, it's per item for sure. So there is there was a maximum of $100 per family per year, per year, but that involved a system to kind of link everyone together. And a lot of the time when we count from the 1st of February, people would have to pay like maybe $70 in that first round. If you've got a couple with high health needs, they've got to suddenly have 70 bucks straight away to pay for their meds. So until they reached that $100 limit, that was a really, really um, pressure point for them. But yes, $5 per item. What about specialist ones, Gemma? What about specialist prescriptions? Because often that trips people up, right? Yeah, now that actually isn't changing, unfortunately. Um, They're Mm. only taking away the $5 co-payment, which is the standard prescriber fee. 
Um, mm. Specialists, if they're at your, at your public hospital, yes, that'll be free. But if you see a private specialist, private hospital dentist, those um, fees are staying the same. So a normal New Zealander without a community service card, that's going to be $15. Mm. Um, with a community services card, that drops down. But no, they haven't waived that fee. Um, that's beyond me. That would have been cool if they did that. But um, yes, yeah, specialists are... Are more expensive to get prescriptions from. Gemma, it's wonderful to have you on the program. No doubt, uh, it's a, a big day for you tomorrow yeah. in the pharmacy. Kia Yeah, it's uh, Gemma Perry there, pharmacist spokesperson for Prescription Access Initiative. Seventeen past four. Now we are going to cross to the seal. In Papakura at uh, 25 past four, we're going to um, check updates whether or not that seal did go to uh, KFC. Uh, and I think that's beyond that. <laughs> what, what, what we want to know is what he ordered. <laughs> um, but uh, quite a story there, although someone says here that seal is a regular visitor. Um, but we'll, we'll check into that story. But to this, though, 18 past four, the panel, we have Ed Amon, uh, Ali Jones and Guy Nespina with us, who is filling in tomorrow, uh, sorry, next week. The issue of name suppression has reared its head in the case of Sir James Wallace, a knighted wealthy businessman convicted of sexually abusing three men. He fought very hard to keep his identity secret and did so for five years. There have been other recent cases, Mama Hooch Rapist, Danny and Roberto Jazz, convicted of drugging and sexual assaults of more than 20 women, uh, also fought for years to keep name suppression. Now, journalist Paula Penfold raised this issue the other day in her I've Been Thinking. But it's been made me been making me think and reflect on the very issue of name suppression and, and the and I think the fact that we need to or the justice system in consultation with the rest of us needs to think about whether it's working, whether it's effective, whether whether we should be looking at a different approach because it's it it, it doesn't work. Paula Penfold there with us as Wellington Barrister, Rubicon Chambers, Michael Bott. Kia ora, Michael. Kia ora, Wallace. Kia ora, panel members. Is Paula right? Is it working? No. Um, she's she's incorrect, and, and this is why. Uh, usually most people, when they appear before courts, when they're charged, of course, like everyone, are presumed everyone's presumed innocent. And most people don't have the media sort of there as a throng or whatever, uh, broadcasting the results of their matters until after a trial. However, with a few people, um, because of their celebrity, their status, or rather perhaps the <clears throat> rather macabre nature of the, the allegations against them, the media are there. Now, this raises the issue, <clears throat> cases, the um the charges or the notoriety attached to their charges can be such that any potential jury pull could be tainted and there's a risk of a prejudice uh, that could attach uh, prior to a trial taking place. So in those circumstances, as a protection for fair trial rights, often courts will say, hey, in this case here, there is a risk that a jury pool could be so irretrievably tainted, let's just put in place a, a check to make sure that doesn't happen with name suppression. After they're convicted, it's different. Now, in the case of some people who are convicted, well, there is uh, a separate test, and that is in relation. To, that's in relation to exceptional circumstances, right. them or their family, etc. 
But it's usually the main reason, just to ensure that the trial process is carried out. Because, you know, if there's constant reporting about a case and it comes towards the court, and everyone's reading it on social media and the paper and Radio New Zealand and so on, TV News, TV and or wherever, uh, people can have their minds affected, even subconsciously. And you want to try and remove that potential for bias the jury as neutral as possible. Got it. Understand what you're saying, Michael. I'll bring the panel. I'm just looking here, though. Actually, no. What I'll do is I'll go around the panel. Uh, and I mean, Guyon's with us. Um, Guyon, you, you would have been following this. What's the, what's the question you'd have for Michael? Well, setting aside um, the celebrity nature and the contamination of a potential trial, do, do you think it's true that people with high means, people who are wealthy and can afford to pay for a lawyer, will have a greater chance of getting name suppression than your ordinary guy. Well, there's, there's a slight thing there, because the ordinary, the ordinary punter it wouldn't have the issue anyway, because often the media aren't interested. They're often interested in the things that sell coffee. Yeah, well, this, is where, this is where I, um, I, and I'd like to get your response to this, but um, this is where I have an issue with it, because the system seems to be saying if me, who has got a bit of a media profile or an all-black or someone with a big reputation, that that's taken into consideration and people say, oh, well, look, if we named this person, you know, that they would be severely damaged yeah. by it. But Paul, the panel beater, um, well, no problem, let's just name him. And I wonder whether you're saying to him that his community of interest, his bowling club, his local pub, his wife's mates or whatever it was, his reputation doesn't matter in his community of interest, and yet the big sleb down the road, that, that's a problem. What, what's your response to, to that? Well, Paul the panel beater, or Paul of the panel beater nowadays, uh, often because they do have an ordinary life, the media often aren't interested in them. It's when something is particularly nefarious or excites the attention of media, mm. that's when they go to it. Now, if it's a sports personality, that's right. But you, you've hit another point, Guy, and I think that's valid. And, and that's the fact that even after a person has been convicted and served time in prison, the resonance of the reputation or the celebrity caused by their trial can ruin their prospects of going on and reintegrating into life beyond being punished and paying their due. And the other point is that sometimes people get name suppression not for themselves, but because of the extreme hardship to people associated with them. Okay. Now, uh, Michael, just stay there. What we'll do is we'll get a, um, we'll get a response from uh, Ali and Ed, and then we'll come back to you after that. Ali? I think it's a great conversation to be having, um, and it's just been interesting listening to to what you asked there, Guy, on too, because I've often wondered that. I guess what I want to know is, or is it true that the the focus on or, or the um, uh, re- not reliance, the consideration of a person's celebrity, and is it about the the effect that it will have? If the effect of of saying who the person is will create something far greater, far more of an effect as far as uh, earnings, career or whatever, as compared to, say, Paul the panel beater. Is that something that's considered? Well, there are two stages. The first thing is leading up to the trial. You don't want to taint a jury pool to such a degree because of the broadcasting of the sensational reporting of what happened in court prior to trial, such that a jury pool... That you know in the area that the jury is drawn from <clears throat> is tainted, so you have name suppression pre-trial, and that's the, that's usually the reason for it. Then after trial, 
if they're acquitted, well, then why should we be able to publish their name anyway? But if it's not a jury trial, Michael, if it's not a jury trial, and this is just someone appearing in the court, it's it's not about tainting the jury uh, pool then. Surely you've got to think about the person here as well. If someone's innocent until proven guilty, having all of the sometimes salacious details out there, all the sensational reporting, isn't that of, of, of consideration as far as the individual's concerned as well? Well, let's bring, just well, stay there, let, Michael, let's bring in Ed in first and then you can respond to both. Ed, I'm on. Well, even if if we take the point uh, point of uh, the level of media coverage is different for Paul the Banner Beater or, 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 or an All Black, don't you think that the system itself is at the moment um, very inequitable? Because um, in, in last year, a couple of years ago, RNZ uh, did this uh, is this justice report, and in that um, it shows that Maori were charged with 43% of the crimes but only accounted for 17% of interim final name suppression whereas Pakia, um were, they got one third of their, uh, two third of their approved like they got the uh, uh, name suppression, yeah. so keeping Maori, all the arguments aside the system still is inequitable and needs to be fixed It depends on what the crimes are, surely well, he's just saying the Māori charged with 43% of the crimes, but accounted for 17% of the interim and final name suppression granted. That's a report from, I think, last year, but RNZ. It depends on the crime is what I'm saying. Well, it's really, it's, it's, it's an issue of equity. It's quite clear there, is it not, Michael, by those figures? Um, there is an inequity in the criminal justice system, and you can't get away from that. Like, for example, the prison statistics. Māori are 15% of the general population, and they're around 45 to 49% of the prison population. Now, and it's similar all the way through when you look at arrest statistics and those sorts of things. Years ago, when we did look at bands, when they first came in, there was an inequity in the way that Māori were preceded with as opposed to Pākehā. Now, and that's the same thing in terms of uh, prosecution and court and whether to go ahead with that or looking at your arrest discretion. Those, those figures are there. And so you, that's a separate issue. But even but the, the previous, is it Paula or the, 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 previ, the previous panellist who mentioned, for example, about the fact. Ed, yeah. Uh, Ed, but uh, the, the woman before that. Mentioned Ellie. Ellie. About the fact, yeah, Ellie. That when you go to court, you know, all your laundry is often aired in public and it's easy copy. But the thing is, the person who goes through and is acquitted is, while the judge is innocent, in a sense, there's damage to there's the stocks of shame of media publicity, as one late judge called it. And, and that's true. Okay. And for a person who's acquitted, why should there be a licence to air their laundry in public when arguably. Uh, they've been presumed innocent. Michael, really good points. Case. Really, really good points there. And clearly, there's been a bit of interest here. So, um, look, really thank you for your conversation this afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. That's uh, Michael Bott there, Wellington Barrister at Rubicon Chambers. And as you say, Ali, we could really discuss this for the whole half mm. hour, couldn't we? Yeah. But I did want to get to this. I really did. Uh, police are still guarding the scene in Papakura, where a seal has been running across driveways and into gardens. And we have RNZ reporter Aisa Almeida on the line. She's there. Kia ora, Raisa. Do you have eyes on this seal? Kia ora. Unfortunately not. Unfortunately, it's really well hidden behind some fences in a driveway that gives access to three houses. 
Uh, we've been here since one o'clock, and the police has been guarding us since, since then as well. The Sioux apparently around 9.30 a.m., this, 9.30 this morning, saw, um, went to KFC for a little stroll, crossed the road, entered the store, then moved move on, just rolled her way through the main um, road. Um, and that's when it got seen by police and tried to, um, they tried to get her in, into safety. But then he just sneak up to, to some houses here and has been here since. Guy on. I want to know a name and I suggest the colonel. Um, <laughs> but um, but um, where did this guy come from? I mean... Yeah, that is the interesting um, thing. In 2015, another seal uh, was seen in the streets in the same place. Uh, the neighbours, they say it's the second time, and they normally come from a river nearby in Pahuri, Pahuri Huri, if I'm saying the correct story. Um, so they come around, and she went quite a distance, I'll tell you there, because from where the, this, this river that they mention it is, um, to KFC, to the street that she ended up in, um, it's quite quite a big a big walk. Um, I spoke to a few neighbors here. Um, they came out outside at 9.30 in the morning, seeing the seal knocking their door. Uh, <laughs> and um, then... At the moment they opened the door, the seal just ran to the other garden. So it's quite, she's, she's, I mean, I, I don't know how um, it's feeling right now, but it might be really scared um, and, and, you know, cornered into the space. And they just really waiting for the Department of Conservation to come over here and rescue it. But um, it's important to know that between May and September, it's, it's Doc said the that you can see young seals of any age actually can be spotted as they leave uh, their breeding colonies, explore and rest. Uh, but they say that people shouldn't keep a distance of at least 20 metres from them and never touch because they can be aggressive. They threaten. Yeah. So, mm. yes, so this... they're very cute, but they also uh, <laughs> need to go back to the nature. So better to keep your distance and, and like police is doing right now. But I'm really keen to see the seal and keep you guys well, updated. Just keep us updated because people want to hear about it. Uh, and so Someone says here, well, KFC, it must be flipper looking good. Um, <laughs> the puns, the puns being around, you know? Yeah, sure. I bet they are. Um, Raisa, kia ora. Thank you for your time there. Um, before we go to headlines, uh, ever had anything like that, Ed? Uh, a, a, an animal um, knocks on your door? Oh, no, we, we haven't had a, an animal uh, knock on the door. Well, the, the, the evangelists and all that, they come and knock okay, on the door and yes. talk to me about religion, but they're not <laughs> animals. Um, but this, I mean, it's, it's turning into like the unruly tourist type of situation. Yeah, it's our version of, you know, the Canada has, the, you know, the, yeah, the bears bear. coming to your swimming pool. And, yeah. and it's, a, it's that great intersection where the animals are, are places where only the humans yeah. are supposed to be. What but was the name of the otter? Remember years ago that the, there was this otter that, that um, kept us fascinated? Oh, someone will know. Someone will know. What was that otter's name? Text me. Yeah, two one zero. Anyway, you're on the panel RNZ National. It's Power Battle Friday, and today I'm giving up the Power Battle to someone else.